Good morning, church. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you, worship team. Uh, like Pastor John said, thank you for the intro, by the way. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here at Capshaw. We are an elder-led church. There are seven of us currently. And if, especially if I haven't got to know you yet, I can't get to wait to know you. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Out of all the places that you could be, you chose to be here to worship with us. And as a church, we're just greatly humbled by that. Uh, but Lord willing, Pastor John will be back next week. So if you don't like me, don't worry. I'm not up here all the time. Um, but we, as elders, we do this thing called expository preaching. So for a while now, we've been going through the book of Romans. And today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 6, uh, particularly verses 15 through 23. So if you would, be turning in your uh, Bibles with me to Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. And while you're turning there, I got to tell you, I feel like every time an elder gets up here, we're like, hey, this is just a really hard uh, section of scripture today. And it's no, uh, no different for me that Romans 6, it's been one of those chapters I have just always struggled with, that um, when I read it as a young Christian, it actually, it scared me. Sorry, I'm trying to get my microphone to work. This is one of the things of uh, being the first time up here. Um, but as, as a young Christian, it scared me. I would read it and it would tell me all these things like, hey, you're dead to sin. You're free from sin. Uh, but I didn't see that in my life. I felt like that there was something wrong with my salvation, that, um, that there had to be something wrong with me, that why hadn't I got to this place? Why am I still sinning? Why am I not free or dead to sin? And so I still struggle with that at some, to some uh, degree as well, that I no longer think my salvation is deficient, but I still think, oh, there must be something that I'm not doing. There must be something that... Uh, just still this uneasiness in me when I read this passage. And so there are some really hard things in here, and we're going to talk about those things today, but I, there is some encouragement in here too. And so if you're struggling with this, stick with me to the end, and I hope that you can be encouraged by it. But let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are good, that you uh, can do no wrong, Lord. I thank you for just the blessings that you pour out onto us every day. Father, I pray that you open our hearts and our ears and our minds to the things that you have to say this morning in your word. Let them change us and just help the, let those things uh, help us grow closer to you. I ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so for the last few pap uh, chapters in Romans, Paul's been writing about this concept of justification. Justification is an act of God where the believer is declared to be righteous in God's sight. So if you are a believer, if you are putting your faith and hope and trust in Christ, then your sin debt was forgiven. Your sin debt was imputed to Christ on the cross, and he paid for that sin debt. But at the same time, his righteousness was imputed to us. It was given to us. And so that's our justification. And all this is a work of grace. The only thing we contribute to this transaction is our own sin. There's no way to earn it. There's, there's nothing we can do. Uh, but it's solely a grace of God. 
And so Paul knows that this is going to raise some questions to those that he's writing to in Rome. And last week, Pastor John taught on the first part of Romans 6, and it was Paul's first anticipated question. He's asked, are we to continue in sin so grace may abound? And of course, the answer was no. But if you missed it, go back and listen to that sermon. There's some really good stuff in there. And then last week, we ended on verse 14 that says, we are no longer under the law but under grace. And so Paul knows that this statement, that we are no longer under law, but under grace, is going to raise even more questions. And so he anticipates that. And that's where we find ourselves today. And I will also say there is overlap between these, uh, between what Pastor John preached last week and what I'm going to preach today. So be looking for those things as we go along. It's not just me trying to rip off John's sermon, I promise you. Um, but let's read Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. So like I said, here's the, here's the question Paul's anticipating. If we have freedom from the law, if we are no longer under law, we are free from sin, then why can't we just keep on sinning? Why, what is there to prevent people from just running wild? Since there's no law, only grace, shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want? So that's what we're trying to answer this morning. And I've got three points, and I'm going to tie them all back to that question. Of course, Paul's answer to this question is emphatic. No, no, you can't just keep on sinning. And then he starts to explain why. So let's look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So if you are in Christ, you are a slave of obedience. And if you look a little further down in the chapter, you'll see that that actually means you are a slave of God. And this slavery that we find ourselves in leads to righteousness. And so it's some jarring language, isn't it? That you're a slave of all the analogies and metaphors that are available to Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, he chose the metaphor of slavery. And he also expects the audience to know exactly what he's talking about. In verse 16, he starts it, do you not know? So what he is trying to explain, he sees as a universal truth in the ancient world. And in fact, there probably were slaves in the church in ancient Rome, and there were probably slave owners even in the church in ancient Rome. And so once they see this metaphor, they would instantly relate to it. But for us, you know, it's a little bit different. In our context, when we think about slavery, we think about slavery in the antebellum South and all the horrors and the injustices that came along with that system. Slavery in the ancient world was a little bit different, though. Um, anyone back then could be a slave. It didn't, it wasn't... Uh, confined to just one race of people, but anyone could be a slave. Uh, you could become a slave by being captured and sold into it, or it may be that you were just destitute, you were hungry, you needed a place to live, so you sold yourself into it. But no matter which system of slavery you're thinking of, there is a universal truth to it, and that is a slave is bound to obey his master. And that's the truth that Paul is trying to communicate through this method of slavery that you are going to serve someone, and then that somebody is either sin or God. 
the great theologian Bob Dylan once saying, you're going to have to serve someone. Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. Now, I don't really know much about Bob Dylan. I don't know anything about his faith or if he ever read Romans, but the words are true and they fit in here pretty well. John Piper, preaching on these verses, uh, said, there are no neutral people. There are only slaves of sin and slaves of God. And since we're going to serve someone, we can't serve someone else. You can't be a slave of two masters. A slave can only have one master. I'm a software engineer by trade, um, and so not too long ago, a few years ago, I was helping build this product at a particular company. And the manager I had there, he was just overwhelmed. He had this product and several other ones. And so he brought in a second manager uh, to help out. And so this second manager would uh, come by and he would give me something to do. He'd say, hey, the customer really wants this. They're really excited about it. You need to go build this. But then the first one would come back by a few days later and say, no, you don't need to be working on that. You need to be working on this other thing over here. That's what the contract's about. We don't need to be doing this other thing. And so you see the problem of having two masters. What do I do here? I'm getting conflicting information. I'm getting conflicting orders. Um, I can't satisfy them both. And Jesus spoke the same truth in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so not this verse, but I actually wrote Matthew 6, 24, you know, just Matthew 6, 24, on my whiteboard at work during that time because I found myself incredibly frustrated that I had one guy telling me to do something, I had another guy telling me to do something else. And what happened is that I came to despise one of those masters, one of those managers, but then I followed the other. I did what the other one told me. And thinking back, it probably wasn't the best move to write something on my whiteboard to imply that I despised the guy that was signing my paycheck. So I'm glad they didn't go look up that verse. But think about Jesus's words. You can't sort of serve God and sort of serve sin at the same time. The demands of one contradict the demands of the other. You will come to hate one. You will either hate sin or you will hate God. And you'll come to love one. You'll either love your sin or you will love God. There's no middle ground there. And being a slave, it's a really hard truth for us to grasp because we value our freedom, right? We shudder at the notion of being a slave, but it's a truth that we gotta grasp if we're going to understand Paul's argument. So let's think about this from the non-believer's perspective for a moment, the person that's not following Christ, the person that, according to Paul here, is in bondage to sin. John Calvin once wrote, but if the whole man is subject to the dominion of sin, surely the will, which is its principal seat, must be bound with the closest chains. Before somebody comes to faith in Christ, their will, their heart, their nature, all those things that can be used interchangeably here, just whatever that drive is inside of them, it's in bondage to sin. They can do nothing but sin. Outwardly, they may do good things. You know, they may give to worthy causes. They may uh, nurse the sick back to health. They may feed the hungry. All these things that society would call good but inwardly they give no glory to God for the things they do. 
perhaps, and really they're stealing God's glory for something else. Perhaps it's for themselves, perhaps it's for their organization. There could be a whole list of reasons why they do the things they do, but it's not to glorify God. Externally, the things that they do look good, but God looks at the heart. God looks internally. The person in bondage to sin needs a new heart and a new nature. And when someone comes to faith in Christ, that's exactly what they get. And it brings us to our first point. We can't keep sinning because we are enslaved to God who gave us a new heart. Look at verses 17 through 18 with me. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So remember, Paul is writing this to believers. He's writing to the church at Rome, and he addresses them as you who were once slaves of sin. For those of us in Christ, we were once slaves to sin. We were all in a condition to where our hearts were in bondage to sin. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah spoke God's word concerning this. Jeremiah 31, starting in 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And this is what happens to the believer at the moment they trust in Christ for salvation. God gives them new hearts. But Paul even goes on to describe this heart replacement. There's an interesting phrase here. He's talking about we've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Well, the word standard here in the ESV, sometimes it's also the pattern of teaching. But the word standard, it's the Greek word tupos. And tupos means something's being molded, it's being shaped. And so Paul is really setting us up a word picture here. So think with me for a minute. Think about a, just an old, rusty piece of scrap metal. Now what we're going to do, we're going to take that piece of metal and we're going to heat it up until it becomes a liquid. And imagine I got a table out here in front of me and in that table is a mold. And now we're going to take that scrap metal and we're going to pour it into that mold and we're going to start pressing it down. Well, what happens? that metal, that old piece of rusty metal, starts to take the shape of its container. We'll also see that during this process, the impurities in that metal start to separate, and a good metal worker can take those out. So this is the picture that Paul is painting of what happens to our heart. Our old sin-ridden heart, our old will, our old desires get obliterated. It gets melted down like that piece of rusty metal. And once melted down, it gets molded into a new shape. It gets molded into the shape of Christian doctrine. It gets molded into the shape of the gospel. And because we have this radical heart swap in verse 18, we find that we've been set free from sin and now enslaved to God. And you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like much like freedom at all. All we did was trade one master for another master. And that's exactly the point Paul's trying to make. Christian liberty, Christian freedom, yes, it's freedom from sin. We are no longer under its power. But it isn't freedom to do whatever we want. It's freedom to love and obey Christ. John 14, 15, Jesus talking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
with our new hearts for the first time in our lives, we have freedom for sin. For the first time, we can love God and keep his commandments. We have freedom to say no to sin and freedom to obey God. And this is the part that I've always wrestled with. This makes it sound like I shouldn't love or shouldn't sin anymore, that I love God less somehow. But obviously, I still sin. So what does this practically look like? How does this work itself out in everyday life? So in their book, How People Change, Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane write, my heart can respond to life in new ways because it is no longer dominated by sin, but liberated by the gracious rule of Christ. This is why I have the potential for amazing change and growth in my heart and life. So practically, we can now respond to the things of life differently. Where before there was no hope in our battle against sin, we now have hope. We have potential for change and for growth. Our identity is no longer bound to sin. Back in ninth grade, I played junior varsity basketball. It's not something I, many people know about. I don't talk about it. I hated it. I never played basketball again after that. But I did make it through the season. And during that season, I actually got a, a technical foul. Uh, I was subbing in. I thought I heard the ref blow the whistle to, uh, to call me in. I wasn't playing, paying much attention at all. I was just kind of in my own world, probably because I didn't want to be there. But um, so I thought the whistle was blown for me to come in. But really, the whistle blew to start play. And so I go running out on the, onto the court, you know, tapping the guy I'm subbing in for. I'm like, hey, you need to leave. The ref sees all this. I was oblivious to it. And he calls the a technical foul for too many men on the court. Uh, afterwards, some people that didn't see this, I heard them talking and they were like, hey, did you hear Craig got a technical foul? So, I mean, I guess they thought I'd just run out and deck somebody. I have no idea what was going on in their mind, but uh, hey, Craig got a technical foul. And they're like, really? Uh, and the other one goes like, yeah, well, it must be that Cap's temper of his. And I'm just like, no, it's just a mistake. Uh, but what happened here is that person assigned a particular sin to me, and I, well, I guess by association, my family. He's a caps. He can't help but have a temper. How often do we do that to ourselves? I'm angry. That's just who I am. I'm a gossip. That's just who I am. I struggle with lust. That's who I am. I'm whatever, fill in the blank. That's just who I am. And as I was saying that, I'm sure in the back of your mind, something might have popped in there. And for that brief moment, at least, that's where you were finding your identity this morning. Not in Christ, but whatever just popped into your mind. Practically, being free from sin and slaves to God means we don't have to think like this anymore. We can and we will change. Perhaps we'll struggle with that sin until the day we die. But this isn't our identity anymore. We are no longer slaves to anger, slaves to gossip, slaves to lust, whatever that thing may be. But we are slaves to God, and he is transforming us into the image of his son. Which brings us to the second point. We can't keep sinning because God is actively transforming us into the image of his son. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
Thanks, Paul, for making this easy for us. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Sin can never be satisfied. Lawlessness leads to lawlessness. Sin always leads to more sin. And sin's tricky this way. I mean, we know it, that sin can temporarily trick us into feeling something good. It can give us that momentary high, if you will. But you know what eventually happens? That sin that we've been enjoying, that thing that's making us feel good, suddenly it doesn't make us feel so good anymore. So we up our efforts. We chase it even more, searching for that feeling again. We give in just a little bit more over and over, and then we start to lie to ourselves. Well, you know, I've got this under control. And then we lie to others around us as well. No, I've got this. I'm okay. I promise. But now we see that that sin is not only affecting us, but it's affecting the people around us as well, eventually leading to broken relationships, broken friendships, broken marriages, families. Sin never stops. It always leads to more sin. Sin isn't freedom. What I described isn't freedom. It's bondage. It's bondage to a terrible master. The only freedom the non-believer has is freedom from righteousness, freedom from pleasing God. And the fruit you get from those sins is those broken relationships and that never-ending pursuit of it. And finally, once sin's done with you, it pays you in death, not only a physical death, but a spiritual death, an eternity separated from God's grace and instead under his judgment. But Paul draws a parallelism here, I believe. Sin leads to more sin, but being a slave of righteousness leads to sanctification. And I think this is the first time in Romans that Paul used the word sanctification, so let's define it. And I'm gonna use Wayne Grudem's definition. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Notice this is a progressive work. Sanctification, it's not something that happens overnight, but it's something that happens throughout our lives. It's a process. And the goal of this process is to make us look more and more like Christ. Over in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, verse 18, Paul writes, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The image that Paul's referring to in these verses is Christ. From one degree to the next, over time, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Well, there again, practically, what does it mean? It begs that question. And so it means that as we look over the course of our Christian lives, our actions, both externally and internally, more and more reflect what Christ looks like. Essentially, we're not sinless, but we should start to sin less. Um, my wife, Casey, came to faith here as an adult here at Capshaw. 
And I overheard a conversation she was having with one of the pastors a couple of months after her conversion. There was this person in her life that was concerned that now that she had come to faith, that Casey was somehow going to change and that she wouldn't be the same person that she was before. But she assured them that, hey, you know, I'm still the same person. I'm still Casey. This wise pastor asked her, so you haven't seen any change since coming to faith? Now, I'm over in the corner trying to mind my own business, failing pretty bad at it, um, and grinning in the ear of the ear because I live live with my wife. I see her every day. I know what she was like before she came to Christ. I know what she was like after she came to Christ. So from her conversion until this point she was having the conversation, I had seen a thing. uh, I had seen a love of God grow in her. I'd seen her to want to study scripture. I'd seen her to want to know more about this savior that she now has. I saw her respond to situations differently. There was more grace there. There was more patience. And so yes, she was still the same Casey, but she was also different. And as a believer, I think that's what you should see in your life. You should see an ever-increasing desire for the things of God. And another word we use for this, of course, is growth. But the funny thing about growth is that it's rarely constant. So if you got kids, then you know it. sometimes they'll have this growth spurt. You'll put them to bed at night. They'll wake up the next morning and you're like, you look two inches taller. But there's also these times where they just go, it seems like forever without growing at all. It seems like their growth is just stunted. And so it's the same way with our spiritual growth. Some days it may be easy to fight sin and find our identity in Christ, yet on other days we may feel totally defeated in our sin. But if you are in Christ, you should see some sort of growth over the course of your life. And we should see growth because God's the one performing that growth in us. Look back at the uh, end of 2 Corinthians uh, verse 18 with me. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Being transformed into the likeness of Christ, our growth, our sanctification, it's from the Lord. God does the growing, but at the same time, we're not passive in it. We do have an active role to play. Back in uh, Romans 6, 19, it, Paul said, present our members as slaves of righteous, righteousness. And that is present your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mind, your whole self as slaves of righteousness. So we've got attention here. On one, we are told that God does the growing, but we're also told to present ourselves. So yes, we should be in prayer. We should be giving. We should be in God's word. We should be in community, carrying out all the one another's that we see in scripture. Because God uses these things to further our growth. And we see in verse 22 that this work, of God, uh, grow, this work of God to grow us produces a fruit in us. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. And of course, the fruit we get, it's over in Galatians 5, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that God is producing in us to transform us more and more into the likeness of his son. Again, it's not an instant transformation, it's a gradual one. 
But finally, at the end of this process, at the end of sanctification, and it does continue to we die. It ends at the end of our lives. And so when this process finally stops, what we find is eternal life, which brings us to our final verse, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our final point. We can't keep sinning because God's free gift. We can't keep sinning because of God's free gift of grace to us. And so this is a very well-known verse. I imagine that some of you even have it memorized. It's part of an evangelism method, if you've ever heard of it, called the Roman Road, where a person uses select uh, verses in Romans to present the gospel. But here we see a final comparison. We see that the wages of sin is death. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, preached, the apostle has in his mind's eye the figure of a soldier receiving his pay. Sin, the captain, pays his higher soldiers a dreadful wage. Now that which sin, the grim captain, pays to those who are under him is comprehended in this terrible term, death. It is a word as full as it is short. Death is the rations which sin pays to those who enlist beneath its banner. Once sin is done with us, once we are finished serving it, we get our payment. We get death. That's the thing that we earn from our time serving sin. It's our wage. But notice how eternal life is described here. It's not a wage. It's a gift. We don't get eternal life because we did all the right things. We don't get eternal life because we reached level eight on our sanctification growth chart. We did not earn it, but God lavishly poured out his grace upon us and gifted us eternal life. Ben Witherington III commented, eternal life is a grace gift. Even if Christian persons manage to live an entirely sanctified life, they would not oblige God to reward them with eternal life, for they have done no more than what was required of them. So it's easy to see why this verse is so often used in evangelism, that it very clearly demonstrates that we cannot earn our way into a right standing with God. We cannot earn our salvation. Instead, salvation is a gift of God, freely available to anybody who calls upon him. But have you ever stopped to think about the placement of this verse in the book of Romans? Because I know I really hadn't until I was preparing for this sermon. This verse is Paul's last thought on the question, why can't we keep sinning if we are no longer under the law but under grace? So that's the context we find ourselves in. And I want to zoom out and look at the bigger context in Romans for just a moment. So I said earlier, for the last few chapters, Paul's been talking about justification. But now we're seeing a shift to sanctification. A shift from talking about our legal standing before God to the everyday working out of our faith, to us growing in Christ-likeness, to us presenting our members as slaves to righteousness. Paul shifts from telling us what has been done to telling us to do something. And if you fast forward to Romans 7, you'll see that Paul tells us the struggle he has with sin, the struggle he has with presenting his members as slaves to righteousness, the struggle he has with doing the thing that he just told us to do. 
And so I think Paul put this verse here to, for two reasons. And one, it's to remind us of what's been done for us and that our sanctification, it's grounded in our justification. We are to do all the commands of Scripture, not because we're trying to earn something, but because of the radical grace that brought us the saving faith, because of that same radical grace that gifted us eternal life. And two, I think he wanted to give us something to cling to on the days when we struggle with our sin, because we're all going to have those days. There are going to be days when we struggle, just like Paul says that he struggles over in Romans 7. So I think Paul wants to leave us with a word of encouragement that during those days, we don't have to fear. We don't have to feel like something is wrong with our salvation. That God's love for us doesn't change just because we're struggling with something. God's love for us doesn't change based on our performance, but that God loves us simply because he chooses to love us. Calvin on this topic wrote, although you feel that sin is not yet extinguished, and that righteousness does not plainly live in you, you have no cause for fear and dejection, as if God were always offended because of the remains of sin, since by grace you are free from the law and your works are not tried by its standard. We need this reminder, at least I know I need it. We need to know that on the days we mess up, on the days we lose the battle to sin, we need to know that our failures are no longer tried by the law, but that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks at you and he looks at me, he loves us the same today as he did the day before. And we have the promise that he will love us the same tomorrow as well. In the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, this love is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever type of love. So in closing, if you are a believer and you're struggling with sin or struggling with something this morning, know that that sin no longer defines you, but that you now belong to God. You are set free from sin and loved immeasurably by the Father who sacrificed his own son for you. And although it seems there are times where he's not, he is actively through the work of the Spirit transforming you into the likeness of Christ. And it's all a free gift. It's not on you. It's all because of God. But perhaps this morning you are not a follower of Christ. Perhaps that you are starting to realize that you are a slave to sin that you thought things between you and God were good, but lately you're just not sure anymore. Yeah, society would tell you you're a good person. Outwardly, you do all the right things, but deep down, you know you're not honoring God with them. So, and you're starting to realize that that's not enough. You can't stand before a holy God like that because you know that your sin separates you from him. If you find yourself in that possession, position, then I encourage you this morning, I invite you, repent of your sin, trust of Christ for salvation. We're about to close in prayer, but before I do, if you have any questions about anything that you've heard this morning, if, uh, if we as elders can help you in any way, please, there'll be some of us down here at the end of the service, come grab us. We love talking with y'all. We just love y'all in general, but let's pray.